Hello, and welcome to the Natural Dye Podcast, a place to hear the voices of individuals using color from nature. My name is Kelsey, and I'll be your host today. Nikki Sukamoto is an artist, indigo enthusiast, and small-scale production natural dyer. Nikki is one half of the duo behind Lookout in Wonderland, a home for radical idea-making and collaborative creation. From curtains to shoes, blouses to soft goods, Lookout in Wonderland has continuously shown us the beauty that is found in slowing down and exploring color from natural dyes. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Natural Dye Podcast. My name is, I will have a couple of names. My name is uh, Nikki Sukumoto. That is my married name, but my last, my um, unmarried last name is Livingston. I am an artist who works in natural dyes and natural fibers. Um, Those are the kind of basic parameters of my art practice. I, um, I started learning about natural dyes as a kid. I lived really closely with my great-grandmother. My grandmother, my great-grandmother had uh, a garden where she grew most of her food. And she taught me most everything she knew, you know, like pickling and all that sort of thing. So it was just... Um, kind of a natural part of being a wife then. So um, using plants was just part of daily life. And um, I think that was my introduction into plant dyes. I was also a teenager in the 80s and early 90s where there was that sort of resurgence of like the kind of, they called it like a... (laughs) neo hippie movement or whatever and I was definitely a part of that um learning to do everything that (laughs) that my mom did back in the 60s so um that was also just kind of a part of life of like going to thrift stores and finding those old um kind of self-published pamphlets Um, of like kitchen witches with recipes on you know how to use this and that and um, so there was a lot of that I did a lot of macrame in high school I was I made a lot of my own clothes Um, so I think it's just kind of been a part of my life sort of naturally and in the 90s um, I had a lot of friends who moved up to Asheville, North Carolina in the early 90s and um, Penland was there so that was uh, a place to go and learn and like that's what we did so I got to take a lot of classes um, around that and I also grew up in the kind of um, alternative health wellness world and I apprenticed with a few herbalists um, I had originally gone to university to study medicine and I dropped out and decided that I wanted to study natural medicine. And um, I had just kind of been following the call of the plants basically my whole life. And so that seemed like a logical progression to study with herbalists. And that was something that people did back then. There wasn't 
so much of a push to um, have credentialed um, studies. So there was Bastyr was kind of a thing, you know, you could go um, study in that sort of structured program, but I uh, chose to study with a, a few different herbalists and, um, you know, plant dyeing is always just a part of that life too. So I was in Japan in 2004 and I had an experience um, where I was in Kyoto with friends and um, I bought a bit of clothing from a woman who was likely selling her husband's old um, indigo farming workwear. And my friend was telling me like, oh, you shouldn't buy that because, you know, his spirit may haunt you. Um, so it might not, you wouldn't, you shouldn't buy it. Um, because it, it's very much um, a part of culture. Um, and I thought, oh, but I'm going to go back to the United States. So is he really going to follow me all the way back to LA? Probably not. But the craziest thing is that I started having dreams constantly about Indigo Farm, about Indigo, about like all of the, and it was just the weirdest thing in the world. And I became absolutely obsessed with Indigo. And, um, it wasn't something that was really readily available back then. And there wasn't much information on it because the internet really wasn't such a thing. Um, and uh, most of the books that I have on Indigo were more uh, academic. And so there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, just regular how to. And I just started to lose my mind and I had to know how. I could learn more about indigo. And um, so that kind of started that path of spending so much time in Japan and reaching out to friends and um, even like my husband's family members and um, trying to see if there was anyone that was kind enough to just <sighs> allow me to hang around and, you know, like <laughs> deal with this white woman who just wanted to know something. And the integral world um, is much more open now, um, but then it wasn't so much. Um, there were also not a lot of young dyers. So most of the people that I came in contact were elders. Um, and, um, and I got lucky. I just got really lucky with a couple of people that would just deal with me being around. <laughs> um, and then I met some younger dyers who were really, really, really friendly and open and lovely. And we've stayed friends and they've helped me um, through the years to kind of troubleshoot and helped me, you know, back in the very beginning, like in 2005, access um, Skomo and be able to get it home to LA and figure out how I can make an indigo vat in this climate because it's so incredibly different. And um, 
yeah, there were just a lot of really kind people that aligned themselves <laughs> into my path um, and helped me. And then, you know, just going um, and studying Shibori in Japan so that I could learn more um, about the history of that aspect because it's um, it's typically a full economy there. And I think in a lot of countries um, where you have people farming and then you have people dying and you have people doing the shibori and they all kind of work in tandem and they support one another, but it's not like a, there, it's more so now there are people that are doing everything. Um, but traditionally it's, um, it's kind of a separate task because it's, it's also a lot to take on to grow your own indigo and process your own indigo and do the dying and do the, um, so, um, yeah, I just, I was really blessed to have people who would um, open up to me and teach me the tradition and the history and how to do technique. And um, yeah, that was kind of my indigo process and then kind of touching base and um, asking for help. <laughs> Because it's just really not, it's so difficult. And she's, you know, indigo is just so testy. And um, I I did attempt maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I tr attempted growing my own indigo. And then California fell into really, really deep drought. And the plant takes a lot of water. So I stopped um, growing it outside of just having a couple of plants around to like lovingly gaze at and <laughs> have relationship with um but yeah that's um that's kind of where my meandering path of natural dyes um I definitely I am so grateful to every single person that documented um their process and um, there's a lot of books that I learned from. I don't like to say that I'm really self-taught because I think that um, that erases all of the work that everyone who has taken the time to publish even a small pamphlet into a really incredibly detailed book um, has done to provide resources for those of us who um, spend time learning on our own. Um, so they are my teachers <laughs> and, um, and, you know, there's a lot of, um, elderly women who were just, you know, home dyers and kitchen witches, and they taught me so much. So I don't think, I, I mean, I've had people say, oh, she's self-taught, but I, I'm not, I'm not, um, I, I do practice. I have practiced my entire life. So I think I've been working with natural dyes since I was probably five. So that's like 42 years. So, um, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it self-taught. <laughs> Just a lot of practice. Um, yeah. And then I started, I started this particular practice, the um, fiber art project is what I called it. The, um in 2004 four? 2004 yeah I had um been working with a partner 
before that and we had um, had this really lovely time together having a gallery space and a shop and we made a lot of artwork together and then I stepped out and started working on my own and um, that the fiber art project came out of that and and I put really, really strict parameters around what I wanted to do because um, they just felt like what I needed at the time. So I found um, my weaving mentor who was really instrumental in changing my practice. And um, I started working with a lot of local fiber farmers. And that was when I started working with um, Ranch of the Oaks who they have now left California and they're in Arizona now using, they had a small, mill so using their yarn and um just really trying to keep things as local as possible because um it's just to see you know just to see what I could do and um there's not a ton of natural dye uh flora down here like there is in northern California there's so much you know we don't have mushrooms because it just doesn't rain <laughs> and um, but there is quite a bit. So it was just, you know, kind of really searching my environment to see what I could use and really honing in on um, learning uh, what, you know, could be done and becoming very deep friends with Indigo. And um, so in the beginning, it was mainly a lot of um, woven pieces and shibori practice. Um, a lot of just um, examining um, the kind of cultural significance of things in this country um, and the way that people reacted and resonated with it because of the history of, uh, uh, that's a whole other conversation, the convoluted history of, everything in this country um but it was just kind of recording the way that people reacted to these sort of things um because it wasn't a trend back then you know like I feel like a lot of what I was doing um was very like counterintuitive to what was looked uh on as being appreciated at the time because <laughs> there was this kind of 80s resurgence that was happening and so things were very like <laughs> plastic feeling um but yeah so that was the kind of the beginning of that and um it was really just practice for me it was an art practice just to um deepen my experience with my tools um and using craft and bringing it really forward in my art practice as as an intention of highlighting craft and highlighting um the concept of sustainability i guess uh, if there's a better word for that um yeah and then um oh gosh I started making things again, <laughs> which I thought I would never do. Um, I really just wanted the intention behind it was making cloth and then like doing kind of installation performance where the 
audience members who would become part of the piece and they would determine the form and the function and then we could create something communal. And um, that got hijacked really quickly because I think it was probably around 2010 or 11 that um, natural dyes, indigo specifically, started to have this sort of resurgence. And then there were a lot of eyes on me and my work and people were wanting things. And that was also wonderful because I had quit my full-time job and I was broke and I needed money <laughs> to be able to continue to live and do my art practice. So um, yeah, I, Serena um, Mitnick, Mitnick. Yeah, um, from General Store asked me if I would make a dressing room for the Venice shop. I think I'd been making some blankets prior to this. I get a little confused on the timeline, but I think that was like around 2011. Um, and Pinterest started and like that dressing room got pinned like 50,000 times or something insane. And um, and then people just wanted me to make curtains and I made so many curtains and I did the curtains at the Ojai Rancho, Rancho Inn, Ojai Rancho Inn. Now my jet lag is really kicking in. Um, and that, those went on Pinterest and then it was just like, I think I spent an entire year making curtains. <laughs> All right, Serena had asked me, Serena and Hannah at the general store had asked me to make something for them. And I can't just like wrap my brain around making product. Like it has to have a reason. So I had come up with this whole like conceptual blanket project and like researched this period in time in the 1600s in Japan where the people kind of uh, revolted against the ruling classes and used colors and shibori that they were not supposed to do because they were of a lower class and caste and um, then kind of, <sighs> this is my brain. And then um, uh, like made the correlation, kind of that bridge between shibori you know, in tie-dye and natural dyeing in the early 60s and the kind of upheaval and um, people's, you know, revolts against the government, mainly through outward appearances. You know, there was a lot of, um, a lot of that, that, that did end up making changes in society. Um, so like what people would call performative now, I think, um, during that period in Japan and in the mid sixties um, did lead to cultural changes. So anyway, I made a bunch of blankets and, um, and then I, yeah, I spent a lot of time making blankets and curtains, um, which was wonderful, but also like, um, just kind of, I feel like started to pull me away from the original, feeling of my art practice and was just making product. I mean, I think I started making like table cloths and napkins and <laughs> things like that, which is, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But when, when, um, when my original intention was just to examine um, kind of reaction and consumption and um, how small I could make a footprint 
within my art practice. It just felt really like counterintuitive. So I pulled all of that back and I stopped wholesaling and I stopped making things. Um, and strangely enough, I started making clothes again, which I never thought I would do because I felt so traumatized by the fashion world. Um, but it was actually really healing to like start slowly making clothes that felt good um, for people who just treasured them. And, um, and I'm still making clothes little by little. Yeah. Um, Look Out in Wonderland um, actually became because my husband and I started working together. So Yusuke and I um, decided that we were going to start something, <laughs> you know, like kind of a nebulous, not really a business, but like a, a kind of nesting place for, you know, artist collaboration and doing design and doing our own work and uh, sort of, I've always been um, really, really um, influenced by the uh, Werkstätte, the Werkstätte and the Vienna Secession and like that whole idea of um, sort of like um, social revolution through creating a life of beauty um, and collaboration and community um, where everyone is equal and everyone is invited in and everyone is seen. Um, so we kind of felt like we wanted to create that space. Um, and we were really wanting to move to Laurel Canyon and it, <laughs> it was too expensive for us. So we would just drive through there. And one day we were driving up and he asked which way we want, uh, we should go like up Lookout or Wonderland. And I was like, it doesn't matter. It's beautiful. Either way we go, it's going to be beautiful. And then I was like, oh, this is what we should call our project. <laughs> and that's the true story of how we came up with the name. And, um, and then I just did the like whole registration of that um, like three years later. Because <laughs> that's how we work. I was like, oh, yeah, we should probably make this official. Um, yeah, so that's how that started. And then it was just um, just really kind of natural. Yusuke and I used to work in um, an art studio with a bunch of other people, um, a bunch of amazing artists. And so that just kind of really lends itself to hanging out and making collaborative work and sharing ideas. And um, so, yeah, so we used to do that together and we would like have open studio and sell work and a lot of it we still have and um yeah so that was kind of the beginning of that um and then under lookout in wonderland i started the fiber art project so it was lookout in wonderland fiber art project um which is kind of separate from lookout in wonderland <laughs> but it got it gets you know whatever it's all the same but that's specifically me um and then Yusuke and I started 
I think it was in 2004, we started an art practice together, which was Look Out in Wonderland. And um, we started doing large scale like installation work down to like little teeny tiny bean bags. Um, we made a lot of work for um, places like different shops in Japan together. And um, we hadn't really made he'd been really busy in his job and we hadn't really made anything together for a while but I had been researching flags because it's just how, how my how I work I had been researching flags and banners for years um and like their cultural significance significance and um I had really been wanting to make our own flag and um, we meditation has always been uh, a really large part of my life um, and so I had started researching kind of critical theory and the different different philosophers ideas of collective consciousness and um, um the symbolic imagery that translates that and is um, sort of universal. So that was where we had kind of started. So we've been sitting with that for a long time and going to the Center of Mental Physics in um, Joshua Tree, that Frank Lloyd Wright temple, and you know, sitting there and going to the vortex and walking the the labyrinth and um <clears throat> and we weren't really nothing was coming out of it like nothing like I mean a lot was coming out of it nothing like physical um and so our friends that own this gallery called these days um in downtown just gave us a date and told us we needed to make work for a show um, <laughs> which was actually exactly what we needed. And so we did. And that was in, what was that? 2016, I think was the, yeah, I think that was the year that we made that show together. And I don't think that we had actually made a show together since like two, like it had been eight years, maybe like 2008 was the last time we had actually come together and made the show. So it, it was like a really good impetus and the springboard for us to start working together again. And um, yeah, so that's been really fun. So that's kind of what Lookout in Wonderland is. But Yusuke um, also, uh, you know, does brand identity and um, I'll do creative direction sometimes because that's what my old job was. Um, curation and, and creative direction. So we'll work together times on projects for other people, doing that kind of stuff. So it's a kind of, we have our hands in a lot of different pots. Okay, so Stussy came about because of my friends. I, like I have a friend who I adore um, at Stussy, who is uh, not quite sure what his title is right now. I think he's like head of design or something like that. Um, and we, he came to me about doing like some textile design stuff years ago. 
And so I said, yeah, of course, because Susie's amazing. And they're just like beautiful, lovely people that work for that company. And I like have made other friends through him. And I just, I, I literally love them all. I think that it's the nicest people. And we do, we do parties together. They have like these really fun parties. And so I would do like these tie-dye kind of whatever, something every time, like t-shirts or socks or this or whatever. Um, and then last year they came to me and asked um, if I would be interested in dyeing some sneakers. And you know, it was COVID and I didn't, I didn't have my studio for a long time. So I had to work. We kind of um, did a little renovation in my garage. Um, and I was sewing a lot of masks to donate because I can't really do any dye work out here because it's a really high fire um, hazard area. And also we're, uh, we're on septic. And just, we don't have municipal water either. So our water is just <laughs> crazy. And anyone that works in natural dyes knows that water matters. Um, so I, at first was like, I'll make samples, but I don't know if this will happen. <laughs> then I got actual sneakers. I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Like an actual, like ready-made. And then I was like, oh, think of it as a ready-made. Like this is a project of like, think of it as an art project rather than from a, like the dyer's perspective of like, oh, I'm going to, this is going to break my back dyeing all of these shoes that are already ready-made. So I'm like, no, think of it as, you know, that Dada is sort of, aspect of it and then I got excited and then I just made like a bunch of samples and I was like and I had wiped away from my mind the actual physicality of doing the job um and then it just kind of paused for a little bit and I assumed it wasn't going to happen um and we went to Big Sur um because it felt like the only like safe place to get away we went camping and it was fantastic for Yusuke's birthday. And um, right before I left, I found out that we were going to do the job, but then they needed it in January. And I was like, ah, how many shoes? Oh gosh. Okay. All by myself. Cause I have, I did, had just gotten my studio back. So that was nice. At least I had a workspace, but I have no assistance um, because I can't have anyone in my space. So I hand dyed 250 pairs of shoes <laughs> and nearly dropped over it, but I got them all done. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I did it. Yusuke did take the holiday between, um, you know, that bit of time that he had off between the new year and the holiday. The Christmas holiday to come and help me wash because hand washing sneakers is something special and not in a good way. <laughs> so um, it was a really funny time for me being in my body because I hadn't actually worked much since 2019 because I, you know, the we had that serial arsonist who had like bombed those two cars so the two car or I guess three cars caught on fire outside of my studio so it was like 
the studio and then burned. And then we did the remediation and I threw a bunch of stuff away and then painted and got my studio back. And the next day he did it again. Almost. I was standing right next to the car before it did. And then burned really bad that time. And that was the day that I got the bad, like smoke inhalation damage in my lungs. And it was just a whole thing. And then it took like two months to get my studio back. And by the time I got my studio back, like after the insurance had done everything, we were leaving to go to Japan. We were in Japan until Christmas, right before Christmas. And then we came home and I got really, really, really sick with something that I think might have been COVID. Um, and I got better. And then two weeks later, I got sick again. And so I was sick like January, most of February. And finally, it was getting better at the beginning of March. And then, yeah, lockdown happened and I wasn't allowed to go to my studio because it's there are um, residences above my studio. I have a storefront downstairs and so I, I the city wouldn't let me go. So I wasn't able to work. Um, yeah. So like that whole year. So I, you know, anyone that does anyone that does actual like full time natural dyeing knows that it is incredibly physical and it's like a it's like a different set of muscles when you're like dying yardage and you're dying it's just like it is the craziest workout um and so I was really out of shape and I'm also getting kind of old <laughs> so you know it's like out of shape and then it was like in the studio die 250 pairs of shoes um but I did, and I wasn't really sure what that demographic, like that set of people, what the response would be, how they would feel about it, because it's just so sort of left field, because I feel like sneakers are usually high tech and like it's very, it's just, you know, it's different. So I felt like, like, there was so much humanity in these, like making sneakers human, <laughs> you know? And um, I was really shocked at the response and how much people loved them and how, for the most part, like there were definitely people who came on to my Instagram DMs and said awful things. But um, for the most part, you know, so you just ignore them. Um, people were so like, love them, they were so sweet. The response was so good and they sold out and like, a heartbeat that just felt good after not like really making anything outside of masks for a long time I was like oh yeah I'm an artist people like the things that I do oh I forgot <laughs> so yeah and, and just you know working on that project with the people internally at Susie was just fun because I just they're such great people and I adore them and they give me a lot of um a lot of leeway and it was also just really weird to like have my name on it I was like no 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 let's not do that <laughs> I don't want that I can just uh you know exit out the back door and hide like I normally do but they were like no 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 <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna blow you up I was like ah don't do that to me but it ended up being good it was just really bizarre to like wake up one morning and open my Instagram and have like 
over 800 DMs. <laughs> it's a different world. But yeah, that's the Stussy. That was the Stussy project. Um, they're just cool people. I don't know if I would do it with anyone else, to be honest. It would really depend. Um, I don't do a lot of die for hire stuff. I just, it's, um, it's, too, it's hard work. And um, I don't think people realize just how difficult it is and how time consuming and also like, you know, just the natural resources and, and all of that. Like, I don't think people realize like the green shoes are, were like, ugh, I cried quite a bit. <laughs> it's just, you know, like scouring a shoe because people don't know what the process is. So it's like scouring a shoe, indigo dyeing it three times. And then I have to mordant it. And then, you know, oh wait, no, I have to wash it for, after it's been indigo dyed. Then I have to mordant it. <laughs> then I have to rinse it. Then I have to dye it three times in three different yellows. And the, you know, it's like, and then it's just such a process. I don't think people, people don't really realize what it, what natural dyes entail and, and um, just how, how labor intensive it is and time consuming. So they're like, oh, I just got this, you know, things ready to die. And they're like, oh, oh what's that? And I'm like, well, I have to scour it. I'm like <laughs> things have to go be simmered for hours. It's like, it really is like witch's work, like a lot of just stirring. And yeah, I don't have machines. I don't have like those, Fancy dye machines like Jane Palmer and her brilliance was able to like use commercial dye machines for natural dyes. I just, I do it the old fashioned way. I just have dye pots and I do my stirring and uh, all of my alchemy. And, you know, I work with, I don't typically work with extracts. I work with plant materials. So I have to process all of that. And I have to extract all the color out of it. And that takes time. Like, I, like, I think the, the redwood dye that I was working with took me like six weeks to get the, extract the color from the redwood sawdust. <laughs> it's just, it's the epitome of slow work. And it just is, it's slow. But somehow I got 250 pairs of shoes dyed in six weeks. I think it was like six weeks. <laughs> It's absolute hard labor. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people contact me. Oh, the sweetest messages. Like, uh, this is my, like, uh, life's calling. And I it just, just so lovely. Like, also, like, gushing about the plants and, like, my practice and wanting to work with me. And then they come in and they spend three days and they realize there's absolutely nothing magical or glamorous about this job, that it is incredibly hard work. And they disappear. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, and this is what we're going to do. Oh, and we also save water. So, yeah, you're going to just stand here in this bucket. And you're going to like hand wash and rinse stuff. We don't just turn the faucet on and like, yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry. This is going to take a lot longer and it's harder on your back, but we have to save water. So <laughs> that's what it is. Oh, yeah. And um, also over here with these clippers, you're going to break up all of this matter root <laughs> by hand. You know, I think that there's such a difference in 
the practices that so many people do, because there's a lot of people I know that work in natural dyes, um, but they, they're like, it's more of a personal practice. Like they'll dye stuff for themselves or, or they'll dye something like once every three months or like, it's, it's a very different scale than like, actually like, you know, I, I do client work. So like making like 26 feet of, of um like window covering or wall covering it's like that's or like making enough fabric for people to cover an entire sofa and chairs and it's like okay I just dyed 18 yards of fabric I guess what I do love about this community though is that we have so many different types of people in who love different parts of the process you know there you definitely have like the people who just love growing things and they're they're just so into it and then there's the indigo folks is they are just, they just love their indigo and the processing and the growing and, and their people just love the dyeing and maybe one particular dye or maybe they, yeah, I just love it. it's been really such a beautiful thing to see grow too. Yeah. Because from my side of things, when I was doing this kind of work 20 years ago, there were very, few, like I met Jane Palmer who used to do noon design. She was um, working in um, the Netherlands on that, the, the drop dye project, trying to make natural, the black natural dye for scalable. So she was also like in a whole other world. Um, but they, it was like her and then, you know, like a handful of other people and the people that teach at Pinland and Haystack and like, the community was very, very, very small. I remember when I had been searching for Jenny Balfour Paul's books because I, I remember I had one of them in the, when she, I think it was Indigo in the Muslim world. I had, she was like the main researcher that I knew of back in the 90s. And um, then her books just were out of, they, they were, um, they weren't being published anymore. and. I was really wanting to get my hand on her Indigo book and Amazon had a copy for like $500 or something. And I think this was probably in like, probably around the same time, like 2004. And I went to, this is, this is that whole time was so bizarre. Um, I went to, um, it, it's like, I can't think of what it's called. Anyway, it's like they, when everybody from the Weavers Guild regionally get together and sell yarn and things like that. And there was a woman there that had a table of um, like books and just like random things. And I walked up to her table and the book was sitting there. And I was like, I picked it up and I was like, I was like, oh my God, how much do you, I was like, how much is this book? And she's like, it's $10, but you look like you, you really love it. You should just take it. And I was like, no, I can give you $10 for this book. And I was like, what other books do you got in here? I was like, I'll take them all. Um, yeah. And then it was like, right after that, a friend came home from Morocco and Egypt. And she's like, I, um, I picked this dye up, this stuff. Cause I, I figured you like, you wouldn't know what to do with it. And she brought me home indigo from Egypt and Morocco. It was just like everywhere I turned, it was like indigo was like, yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's been really a beautiful thing to see in like the last 10 years, this community really growing and like so many young people being interested in it. And like, you know, I, I've spent the last 10 years teaching and seeing a lot of people that um, have been my students grow their practice and start their own businesses and um, create so many wonderful, beautiful things. And um yeah, it's it's been a really, really wonderful thing to see. Like, just it, it's exploded, and like, so many people are, are interested in natural dyes now, from from seed to a final product. It's really, it really is nice to see. This episode of the Natural Dye Podcast has been produced by myself, Kelsey Doty, and my co-producer, Britt Bowles. Our theme song, Tinctoria, is by Liz Galore and her band. Please make sure to support them on Bandcamp. We hope you can join us again next time, and thank you for listening to the Natural Dye Podcast. <laughs>